This is Talking Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talking Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Jody. And this is Steve Belinda, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Mule Deer. Uh, Jody, we're heading south, not to Mexico, to the beach and drink fruity drinks uh, with Jeremy Snicker, but, you know, <laughs> we're going to head south and talk to some of our friends and co-workers down in Arizona today. Still balmy and still plenty of mixed drinks there down in Arizona, but yes, we are. We're talking to some of our shared biologists that we've been working with. We've got Lucas Olson, who's been with us for a while, and I know we've talked about him a number of times through our migrations work, but and, we and haven't good, actually in had good him. Ways, Lucas, you know, in good ways, Lucas. In good ways, yes, absolutely. So. And we've also got our our one of our newer hires, Jackson Miller. So, Lucas, Jackson, welcome aboard. Lucas, why don't you uh, kick us in since you are the old fart in this group here of our of our uh, habitat biologists yeah well i'm glad to be on a podcast i somehow made it uh two and a half years without getting wrangled into this so uh it's yeah um i'll just start with a little intro um my name is lucas olson i'm from the upper midwest a wisconsin boy i grew up in northern wisconsin uh Bearing through all the cold winters. So how do we get all these cheese heads around, Jody? I, I just don't get it. So. I don't either, but hey, they do good work. So I I uh, went to the University of Wisconsin, got a undergrad, bachelor's degree, and did my master's uh, at the University of Wisconsin as well. And then found a position in the warm desert. So I figured I'd I'd run as fast as I could. So I've been here in Arizona, like I mentioned, about two and a half years, and working on migration corridor stuff, which I'm sure we'll get into today and I'll dive yeah. into that. And, and, and I, I would have to apologize that two years has gone by without getting you on. It's not uh, certainly not intent. It, it, I think uh, this thing called COVID certainly screwed up a lot of the stuff that we've been working on and, and trying to work through. So, but we're glad to have you on now. Jackson, tell us a little bit about you because uh, I'm looking at your picture there and you've got a Green Bay uh, sweatshirt on. I know you're not from Wisconsin though. No, no, I'm from uh, Nevada. Um, my family's just from Iowa, and my old man uh, just really likes Bart Starr. So before the Raiders moved down to Nevada, we didn't have a team, so he just picked whoever your old man likes. So that's what that I, I think. From. I think choosing the Packers is probably a good choice no matter where you are. So <laughs> it's a good season for it, too. <laughs> Laughs the Pittsburgh Steelers fan over there, Steve Belinda. Anyway, Ari, yeah. tell us about you, because you came on board now a few months ago. Yeah, I'm one of the MDF's newer hires. Um, grew up in Nevada, went to school at the University of Nevada, Reno, where I got a couple degrees in wildlife ecology and finance and economics. Spent the rest of my postgrad years doing, uh, cut my teeth doing some rangeland improvements, health in uh, either northern Nevada or in Montana before I came down well, here. Well, UNR's got a great program, and, and actually just recently, a cooperative research unit got established there, which is an even more important way to help create a grounding for some really solid wildlife science and, and range and landscape science. So uh, so very cool to have that background there. Steve, tell us a little bit about what you had in mind with uh, the projects and the partnerships that we've got going on with the Arizona Game and Fish to hire these guys. 
Yeah, so we have a very uh, special and unique relationship with Arizona Game and Fish that's really epitomized by by the positions that we get funding and in the cooperation that we work with um, that agency to manage mule deer habitats. Um, it goes back, uh, you know, quite a few years. I think six, seven years ago. Um, you know, our former CEO and, and the brass there at uh, Arizona Game and Fish basically said it's time to start working together closely. And and through um, really some some funding from Pittman-Robertson Act and some of the state funding that Arizona Game and Fish has, we're able to partner with them and cost share for these positions. Uh, Lucas's position actually was a direct result of SO3362, which we've talked about many, many times. And, and he's actually... Uh, he wears three hats. He really is USGS, uh, Arizona Game and Fish, and Mule Deer Foundation. And his job really is to uh, take the data from the callers and, and that the scientists have been collecting for a while, you know, run it through the models and then put, put, print out the migration maps and other things that allow us to, to figure out what we need to do, where we need to do it. Um, and I'll let him talk about, you know, how that process and, you know, Jackson's um, really all about, you know, getting project work done. His his primary function is to work hand in hand with the habitat folks over at Arizona Game and Fish to identify projects, get them planned, get them out the door. And then we work collaboratively with the U.S. Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management and other funders to get things done. And, and we have two large stewardship projects in Arizona that, that Jackson leads on. And I know that they've got some exciting things in the works for, you know, the Kaibab Plateau and some other things. And then, you know, finally they work uh, collectively as a group down there to make larger landscape level planning efforts. And it's all driven by the state's desire to do things on the ground at a landscape level. And we've talked about that many, many times. And as you know, Jody, many, a lot of meetings that I hold, I'll ask folks, what does landscape mean? Well, down there, they're looking at tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of acres at a time. And so without stealing some of the thunder, that's really the relationship we have. Um, conservation is a very small family. So we end up personally knowing a lot of the people at higher levels, uh, it's no different right now. Uh, Joel and I have a great relationship with Ty and Josh and others down there. And, and so it really works out really well. And, and, you know, it, 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 it you know, we, we sort of joke that, that Lucas and Jackson are younger than us, but you know, this really is, is we're building solid relationships for the future, not just of Arizona, but of conservation in general for mule deer through these, through these uh, agreements and shared positions. And so. Um, I hate to say it, Steve, uh, but we're getting to a point where there's an awful lot of more people that are younger than us in this business. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> Well, I remember someone the other day on a call saying, look at all the gray beards. Well, well guess... <laughs> it was quite impressive to see all the literal gray beards uh, of the members of the call. So, you say so no, Luke... no shave November on that one. So, <laughs> I know our listeners don't want to hear me talk anymore. So we're going to kick this over to Lucas and yeah. you know, Lucas, uh, why don't you basically just set up the foundation of your job and then we can jump into some of the things that you're finding? Yeah, so I was um, hired kind of on the, the coattails of the SO3362 efforts. Um, and one of the major pillars of SO3362 is that it was focused conservation using maps. And the background is that a lot of state agencies have collected 
GPS collar location data for decades, but there's been um, some confusion or uh, there hasn't been a cohesive way, I guess, to analyze the data and to focus on a specific issue like migration. So through the Wyoming Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Unit at the University of Wyoming, who's led a lot of these efforts, they designed a corridor mapping team. And so one of my initial roles when I came on board here was to sit on that team to use a scientifically proven method to map migration corridors and kind of wrangle some of the data that Arizona Game and Fish has collected for the last several decades and specifically hone in on migration habitat, where winter range, where corridors and stopovers are. And then- Now, now Lucas, I'm going to jump right in. Tell, I mean, you've told me in the past, uh, tell our listeners, I mean, how many points are out there? I mean, it's not, it's a lot. Millions. I mean, just uh, since I've been on board here and we've initiated some research projects, we've collected uh, almost 2 million GPS locations. So there's a, there's a huge, um, there's a huge need for analysts to, to go into that data and, and, you know, look at the database and understand what's actually going on instead of just looking at locations on a map. Now, looking at those locations, um, the old school was the VHF callers. So where you had to, you had to go out with a Yagi antenna and, and, yeah. you know, then when the collar popped off, you could download that. And then the new ones are GPS collars. We've talked about them and you can set those for regular intervals from two hours to once a day. Um, you're talking about all of this data that's been sitting there yep. and it hasn't really been useful to a lot of folks because it hadn't been compiled, analyzed and run through models. Yep. Or it was just kind of used for a specific research question and, there's actually a lot of secondary questions you can ask with these big data sets, like where do animals move between summer and winter range? Yeah. So, uh, and I want to step back a little bit with what C was just talking about for, for people who may not understand. Obviously, the old callers, you had to actually physically go out there and have an antenna, and that's where you would get your points to know where they were. Then you started to get them where they had some better satellite transmission, but they may not have recorded. They didn't have the capacity, the, the digital capacity to hold that much data. Now you can get points of where they are within once an hour, right? Or, or even more frequently. Yeah, so you, you can get them even 10, 15 minute intervals. Um, and along with the techno technological advances that the battery life of these collars yep. that are uplinking to satellites have come a long way. So we can get three, four, five years of data collecting lo regular locations at two to three hour intervals, which is pretty, yeah. pretty and that's, a, a big difference from when you go out there and, okay, we know where there's, this deer was in October, um, and then we know where it was again in December, and then we know where it was again in January. Now you are at, I mean, it gives you a whole bunch of points of data to say, okay, this is where it was at this particular moment in time today and a little bit later today and then tomorrow. But taking all that information and making it into something that um, – makes sense and visible uh, and understandable about how their movement patterns are, that's kind of new. So we want to get into that in a little bit. We do have to hear from our supporters right now and take a little break. But when we get back, Lucas, tell us a little bit more about what that process is to analyze that data and actually be able to see those kind of lines on a map of where those animals move. The best hunting stories begin long before the harvest. They begin with the hard work of conservation groups like the Mule Deer Foundation, working tirelessly to protect our hunting traditions. As a proud partner of MDF, Vortex Optics is dedicated to improving your experience in the field by offering you rugged, 
Innovative Optics and Apparel backed by our VIP warranty. Our unlimited lifetime promise to take care of you whenever you need us. Together, let's ensure mule deer always have a place to roam. The best hunting stories are yet to be told. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. All right, we're back. When we uh, took a break, we were hearing a little bit more about the science behind and how the the changes in GPS collar technology has allowed us to get all of this data. That's a lot of points of information. How do you take it uh, in non-technical terms? How do you take it and make it into something that is visually easy to understand where these animals are moving and where the important places are? Yeah, so the the simplest form is really to to connect the dots between subsequent locations, you know, every two hours and, and you can connect those dots. And then the movement in between those two locations, we recognize that there, most animals don't just move in a straight line. So we use some analytical methods to create a buffer around that movement. And by doing that with like an entire herd of animals, we can start to understand, okay, where did the majority of the animals from that herd move? between their summer and winter range. And that really helps us to focus, you know, putting our limited conservation dollars towards, you know, what's going to benefit the majority of the population. So Jody, um, just to expand on that, you know, there is some professional knowledge and professional opinion that comes into this and they use topographic areas, slope, you know, historical movement information, barriers, roads. And so through this, you really can, you know, like, like Lucas said, we used to get straight line maps and now we can actually see with some, some pretty good confidence how these animals are using that. And, you know, like we've talked in Wyoming, you know, the discovery of stopovers and the importance of how those animals in long distance migration are are migrating like waterfowl um, where they're moving, holding up, regaining energy, moving again, you know, we're seeing unique things in, in other states, um, which is new. We used to think, hey, migration's migration. Now we know that that's not the case. And we, importantly, too, we corroborate, you know, a lot of the info that we're gathering with our local biologists, and it's tied to a lot of local knowledge, and and um, it's kind of connecting the gaps in, in what the, the agency kind of knew was already going on, but it's really with a lot uh, greater, you know, higher definition, being able to focus on where those animals are moving exactly. So Lucas, I'm going to step in here and you know what I'm going to say, because I've said it, I've stole your thunder on many really, you know, it's the power of place. It really is taking data, running it through a model and figuring out how animals are using the landscape. More importantly, it leads to two things, Jody, and we're going to jump over to Jackson. First one is, is it advises policy. It advises land use planning. It advises agencies to figure out where they need to be doing more or less or shifting their focus. And and as that relates to SO3362, the state action plans, you actually, as Lucas leads the effort to go through to revise them, he's actually more confident of where the priority areas are and the things that you can do in that. But more importantly, it leads to the things that Jackson does. What can we do and where can we do them? Before we jump over to Jackson, though, I want to uh, to give people a, a visual. So about a year ago, through the corridor mapping team, uh, USGS released a report about ungulate migrations of Western U.S. It was a volume one, and Arizona is included in that. And the work that Lucas did 
is included as part of that. So if people want to go there, we, we did do a press release on it in November. Um, there is a link on there, or they can just Google ungulate migrations of the West um, and, and find that in there. And then you can get some visuals of those maps and you can see a little bit better on the Arizona landscape. And again, that then informs the actions on the ground, which is the work that Jackson's doing. So, so Jackson, Jackson, tell us a little bit about how you can take that from that information to, to work it on habitat management plans. Yeah, I think the work that Lucas does is critical to mine. There's only a limited amount of time and money, as you guys know, that you can put in towards habitat work. And so it's important to focus on the work that the deer are actually, uh, place the deer are actually hanging out. And the work that Lucas does not only tells me where they're hanging out, but where's the most important place to put the work in. And it's also a super powerful tool when I bring it to the agencies. I can say like, look, I don't think this plan, this project's going to help your your deer population, I'd be like, I know this project will help the habitat deer in your area. And here's the data to back it up. And uh, agency representatives really respond well to that. I got a question for both of you. Um, I think I know the answer, but, you know, not being a field biologist anymore, it's uh, sometimes uh, we make mistakes. But but let's say we go out and do a project. Can we then tell how animals respond to that project using this approach? Yeah, I'll, I'll hop in. And I, I think we can, especially if it's a pr- project like a fence modification, we can sometimes immediately see the impacts of that enhanced movement ability. But when it comes to a, like a habitat enhancement project, you know, long-term monitoring is probably the best tool. Um, but using multiple years of GPS data, you might see an increase of use of those particular areas. Um, you talked about stopover habitat. Um, you know, an animal might just spend more time and we could, we could definitely tell that from the GPS collar data. So let me, let me just see if I got this right, Lucas, or I mean, Jackson, you take the data and you look at the project and say, let's tweak the project then based on what the data is telling us. Sure. Yeah. Or it might be like, Hey, like these years spend a lot of time in this habitat. There's room for improvement right there. This is a good place that we could actually make a difference in the deer's home. So I know you have a couple of bigger projects going on there. Why don't you fill us in on what those are, the name of them, what you're doing in the area, and what you think the expected benefits are going to be? Yeah, so the first one is called West Escadilla. It's a stewardship project with the Apache Sitgraves National Forest over on the east side of the state. It's about 32,500 acres, and it's mostly a grassland restoration project and a fire reduction project. The cool thing about this project, in my opinion, is that it's such a large scale and it's a historic grass and savanna area that's been recently colonized by pinion and juniper forests. And so by removing a lot of these woody vegetation that's in there, we're allowing to revert it back to its historical ecology and reduce um, the amount of fires that roll through there, which helps all the wildlife and cattle in the area. So when you say colonize, you're basically juniper has invaded the area and become established and is becoming the dominant vegetation type. Absolutely. It's pretty widespread out in that neck of the woods. We've talked about this before about why that's that's problematic. Um, you know, for, for one, this was grasslands. That was the primary forage type uh, before. But they also the uh, what's, what's the word, Steve? 
Oh, Peter mastication. Pan. No, allelopathic. No. There. Oh, allelopathic. <laughs> yes, I'm yeah. sorry. That was that's one of uh, Steve's favorite words. But it, it, they they use a lot of water, uh, and they also limit growth of anything else around them, and and so it, it reduces the forage available for the deer. Um, so we all know that that pinion and juniper provide great hiding cover uh, and and bedding areas and things like that. But when there's too much, and when it's taking over and becoming the predominant vegetation over top of these forbs and grasses that that deer need, uh, then it's problematic. And we need to go in there and and, and get those back and restore these native habitats, uh, uh, grassland habitats, right? Which that leads to exactly how we do it, which is yeah. my second favorite. The other favorite. word. Yeah. So uh, we masticate those, those habitats a lot of times. Uh, Jackson, why don't you describe what's involved? We've talked about it in other ecosystems, California, Utah, uh, Colorado, but you know, what, what give the, give the listener a picture of what's going on when you're out there doing this work. Sure. So basically we pick a big old piece of machinery and we put a drum masticator on it with a bunch of teeth that spin at 2000 RPMs a minute. And it goes right up to a tree and just grinds it down to a bunch of mulch. And that mulch provides little micro nurseries, like Jody was saying, to help improve the grasses and forbs out there to grow back and provide extra food and forage for wildlife and cattle. And, you know, it's important to note here, we're being selective. We're not taking every juniper off the landscape and we're not taking the old growth juniper. We're really looking at the eco site and saying, what shouldn't be here? What's come in in the last 150 years and what can we get back to native habitats? And that's important because there's a lot of critics out there right now on, uh, juniper removal basically saying we're just doing it for the benefit of cattle and and forage and, and i've had to defend the approach that mdf uses saying no we're looking at this very closely and we're working with uh you know folks at nrcs and u.s forest service and blm in the state and people with local knowledge and saying okay you know really it's the younger stuff um, it's the stuff where juniper shouldn't be. And, you know, we're, we're, we're leaving enough that that hiding cover in the habitat for things like pinion jays and other, uh, uh obligates of that habitat type aren't going to be without a home. Yeah. I think it's a real benefit to all species. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think even pinion jay, uh, prefer not to have too many pinions around. Not a birder. So can't tell you that, but, uh, <laughs> my, my, my birding usually involves birds that you can eat. So, you know, <laughs> I do know a lot about raptors, but we're not talking about raptors here. So um, what's the other project, the other big project you got going on? Yeah, that's uh, it's the 10X campground project on the Kaibab National Forest. This is one of those places that Lucas had identified as a stopover, wintering, or not a stopover, I'm sorry, a wintering habitat for the San Francisco Peaks herd. And then that neck of the woods, the deer really rely on the browse species uh, for winter forage and they're kind of doing a little bit the species are having a rough time up there so it's another woody uh, vegetation removal project where we're coming through taking some of the younger trees out and pruning back cliff rows which actually regenerates a lot of new growth in cliff rows and sagebrush so that the deer will have better uh, winter forage when other food options are pretty scarce yeah. Sounds like an old whitetail project, Jody, that we learned about, you know, back East growing up. So. Well, you know, and, and this reminds me, and, it, and it's something, again, we, we talk about this a lot, but it, but I think it, it bears uh, very important kind of reminders of it. 
um, some of this is just changing successional process, ecological process. And that sounds like a big word, but the idea is that natural disturbances used to always occur, whether it was low level ground fires um, or um, wind or things that would change and create uh, a new vegetative opportunity. So the old, the trees would get cleared out, uh, the grass would start coming back in again. Uh, and, and those mosaics, those, those mixed habitat types, early successional, mid successional, late successional habitats benefit deer and other species at different times. And so again, we're trying to mix up and make sure that we have the variety of habitats. This makes it more resilient to things like drought, to wildfires, things like that as well. So I think that, 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 there's, there's a lot of benefits to mule deer, but there's a lot of benefits to a lot of other species and the habitats in general. So we need to take another break to hear from our supporters again. But when we get back, um, we'd love to hear a little bit more about these projects that you're working on. And, and Lucas, maybe circle back to you about some of the research that you've got going on. I know I have seen some pictures of you guys in uh, helmets and uh, li- lying on blindfolded deer. And I know you've got some more of that coming up. So let's hear about some of your, uh, your helicopter captures. If you're buying or selling a trophy hunting or fishing property in the Western U.S., our friends at St. James Sporting Properties should be your go-to resource. St. James Sporting Properties is more than an elite group of professional ranch brokers. They're also passionate about chasing monster mule deer, highly successful big game hunters, and avid outdoorsmen. When you combine their passion and expertise in the outdoors with their industry-leading marketing program, you're guaranteed to have a first-class experience. For more information, go to the Supporting Partners page on MuleDeer.org or give St. James Sporting Properties a call today to buy or sell your dream sporting property. For three generations and over 75 years, Weatherby has remained dedicated to excellence and innovation in producing quality rifles, shotguns, and ammunition. With 15 cartridges and unmatched ballistic superiority, know that nothing shoots flatter, hits harder, or is more accurate. Carry a Weatherby on your hunt of a lifetime and know you can depend on it to get the job done. At Weatherby, we exist to do one thing, inspire the dreams of hunters and shooters. To learn more, visit weatherby.com. All right, we're back. And I uh, was finishing up the last time talking a little bit about ecological succession. And I don't know, Jackson, did we finish up uh, hearing about the projects? You've got a couple of others that you've been working on, or those are your primary ones that you're doing? Those are the ones that are in progress right now. I got some more irons in the fire, but we can we can move on if you'd like. Sounds good. Yeah, so, All right. so just, just yeah. to mention, Jody, those, those two projects, the, the 10X and the West Escondia projects, those are partner projects with the U.S. Forest Service and with Arizona Game and Fish. So between Absolutely. MDF, uh, U.S. Forest Service, and uh, Arizona Game and Fish, we're all supplying funding. And then we're carrying those out as the, you know, basically general contractors. So we talk about partnerships. It's a really good example of how it works well in this case. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, we started this talking about uh, your studies and your research that you're doing there, Lucas, but you can't do that without having collars on deer. And uh, and you guys actually get the fun of deploying collars on deer, which basically means you get to jump out of a, a helicopter and, and, and take some important samples and put collars on deer. Tell us, we have some pictures. I know we did some video on that recently and, and you got some more coming up. Yeah, I 
you know, I'm really fortunate that I get kind of get to be involved with all aspects of our research. And that includes, you know, the, the fun field work of, of getting out there to, to find deer and, and capture them using various methods. But primarily we've been using helicopter net gunning, um, which is where we have a, a very skilled helicopter pilot fly a, a trained net gunner and spotters locate our deer, which is usually when we rely on MDF volunteers to come out and help us glass and spot deer. And then the, the pilot, of course, navigates us in and the net gunner gets the deer. And then I get sometimes the fun job. It's called mugging, of, um, being in the, the passenger seat of the helicopter. And I'm kind of the first one on, on scene, which is restraining the deer um, until the other capture crew can get out there to help. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty intense, uh, experience, but it's been, uh, you know, it's cool to, to kind of get to know or to handle these deer personally. And, you know, you punch that ear tag and you kind of know their number and then you can kind of watch them and see what they, what their annual movements are like. And it gives, it's kind of a cool personal connection with, with these research projects too. And, you know, it's definitely a cool investment. <clears throat> So Jody, I laugh at mugging, having been a mugger before, uh, not out of a helicopter, but for ground captures. Um, you know, Lucas is not, you know, a large guy like I am. Uh, I can only imagine what some of them adult does do to him when they start kicking and bucking and, and throwing around, you know, trying to hold him down. And, and you know, the, the other thing is, and this is a great thing about remote work and you know, I think Jackson, you were out on a, a deer capture project. What your first week of work? Yeah, right away. They started me. They started me early. Yeah, here we're we're doing all this office work, Jody, and he's sending me pictures like, "Hey, this is <laughs> what I, like I was doing job. this week." <laughs> <laughs> I always laugh when I uh, when I see pictures and and uh, and and think about it because it, to me it is the most uh, most obvious alien capture. I can only imagine what those poor animals <laughs> like. I cannot believe it. I was running and then something came in behind me and threw this net and then these things jumped on me and now I've got this necklace and I can't get it off. <laughs> well, and if he was using the crazy Kiwis, uh, watching those guys hang out on the skids and shoot the net gun and, and, you know, jump when they and things still 15 off foot off the ground. It's, uh, I don't know if those guys are still around, but for years there was uh, some crews out of New Zealand that just, push the limits of what was safe and uh, i mean they did a great job but crazy yeah so you guys were out there in october i know you got a couple of deer collared um in what was actually a larger pronghorn study but you're going out in january again right yeah so that project is actually we call it our south of i-40 project and it's it's a multi-species project it's focused on pronghorn we have majority of pronghorn collared south of i-40 but we've expanded it to include mule deer and elk Oh, well, let me, um, let me that, pause there. You don't have the majority of the pronghorn that lives south of I-40 collared, but most of the pronghorn that you have collared are south of I-40. I just want to, yes. <laughs> want to clarify yeah. because we do not have that many. These are pretty expensive collars to, to be deployed. Yeah, we have about 30 deer collared um, and 60 pronghorn collared in that um, Garland Prairie down to Ash Fork area, for those of you familiar with, with Arizona. But we've, through some of the secretarial order funding for research, we've discovered a new migration corridor. Uh, it's kind of like where you look, you find. I always kind of use that term, but we found a new migration corridor. So we're trying to increase our sample size and get a few more mule deer collared. So yeah, in January, mid-January, we'll be collaring about 20 more mule deer um, from that herd, looking at this 
really cool migration corridor that we're we're developing. So Lucas, are those how far are those animals moving? You know, we've seen hundreds of miles up north. I mean, how far are they moving in Arizona? So our longest deer migration we've documented has been 87 miles, and that's a one-way distance. So that oh, that individual doe is moving 174 miles every year. South of I-40, this project we're talking about, those deer travel about 50 miles. But what's really interesting is that it kind of looks like they're constrained between two pretty major roads. So between Interstate 17 on their east and then US 89 on the west, um, these animals are kind of constricted in their movement. So that's another reason we're expanding this research project is to kind of look at do are any of those mule deer crossing the highway and they might potentially be going farther or is the highway really that much of a barrier that it's just constricted their migration to to be within those two roads. Well, we've certainly seen that. I mean, the, the, the graphs in Wyoming at I-80 that show that the animals just stop and pile up there on 80. Uh, so, so it happens that they, these, these quarters can get severed. Uh, and, and obviously I-40 has been there for a very long time. Um, and, and just a note that I, that I think is relevant and also stems back to the, what Secretarial Order 3362 has done. Just recently, Congress passed the infrastructure, the bipartisan infrastructure funding bill, and um, that included a pilot project with $350 million for highway crossings, for wildlife crossings, and and to be able to improve the infrastructure around to ensure that wildlife crossings are a priority. Uh, And that's huge. That's the first time that that has actually been recognized. A lot of the projects that are being done using transportation funding in the past have tapped in and and, and you can see that they're using federal dollars as well as state dollars to do it. But this, to have a dedicated pool, will allow more of these projects and the research that y'all are doing that are showing the right places to put those overpasses, underpasses, and funnel fencing in are going to make a huge difference. And hopefully, potentially, it sounds like, possibly reconnect a corridor that has been severed. Yeah, definitely. And like you mentioned, just having that research and that information on hand for when funding becomes available, you know, we've got many locations identified that will be key locations for for a wildlife overpass um, that, like you said, will connect previously, you know, severed habitats. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's really feel, the, having the research, it's, again, it's, it shows us exactly where that stopover is or a bottleneck in a corridor. And it shows you where um, we're having some issues with the ability for animals to move, whether it's a complete stop because of a highway or we're seeing increased uh, thing. And again, that's what the research was meant to do. And and we are starting to see the fruits of the labor of the, the four years or so that, that Secretarial Order 3362 has been in place. So Jackson, um, I know you've mentioned to me, you've, you've got some things in the works um, based on the information and based on your you know, getting your feet underneath you, you know, what can we look forward to coming down the road from habitat projects? Uh, you know, you don't have to be specific, but where are you looking? You know, we talk about the Kaibab. It's one of the most famous deer herds in the West. Um, are we continuing to work there? Are we looking at some of these areas that's being identified from the work Lucas is doing? 
So, Steve, before we actually let Jackson go, I think we have to take one more break to hear from our supporters. Uh, and I don't want to have to stop Jackson from talking to be able to get that in. So why don't we take that break right now? And when we come back, Jackson, you'll have a little bit of time. You can let us know what you want to do. Elk, sheep, big old muleys. Not a problem for the 27 Nosler. We packed it with more downrange punch than the 300 Win Mag. We designed it to be flatter shooting than the 6.5 PRC. The 27 Nosler is everything you've heard, all that you've asked for, and plenty more. So enough talking. Check out the numbers for yourself and see what makes the 27 Nosler such a beast at Nosler.com. All right, we're back, uh, and I uh, rudely cut off Jackson before we started there, but uh, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure we had plenty of time for us to be able to hear more detail and, and not have to stop him in the middle. So, Jackson, tell us about those projects you've got coming up. Yeah, no worries, Jody. Thank you. Um, yeah, Steve, we got we got some uh, things cooking back on the Kaibab I'm trying to get going on again. Um, there's a lot of wintering range up there for deer that I'd like to see improvements on. But I've got... Um, so, so when you say improved upon, uh, tell us what you're thinking there. Is that mastication, thinning, shrub planting? You know, wh- what are you thinking about? For that specific project, I'd like to do mostly hand thinning just because of the, the nature of the forest in there. There's a lot of like gambles oak and old growth um, ponderosas that we'd like to make sure that they don't, you know, accidentally get ground or uh, I don't know. It's just easier to work in there with a smaller hand crew, guys with chainsaws. And then that way they can focus on pruning some of my cliff rows that I like to see regenerate for uh, winter food. Closer to the Phoenix area where we're based out of, we got um, a big over 100,000 acre project that we're trying to get rocking and rolling here. And um, that's going to be treated with prescribed fire and more hand thinning and eventually mastication down the road. But if everything goes well with that, we might see chainsaws cranking up as early as next year. And then I got a meeting later this week with uh, Prescott National Forest about doing some watershed projects over on the Verde River. Great. Um, so all of this leads to big question. How are the deer doing in Arizona right now? Um, how's the drought and the other things, you know, and, and more importantly, did you get a chance to get out and, you know, chase some deer or some elk this year? And how did you do? I'm seeing, I was going to say, I'm seeing Lucas smile because I saw yeah. pictures. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I'll just start by saying that, you know, the, the mule deer populations here, I think in the recent um, range wine analysis uh, that the WAFO mule deer working group put out, you know, they're stable or decreasing. I think that the drought has definitely been um, a concern and we came off of, uh, you know, mid 2021 being one of our worst drought years to entering our best monsoon that they've had on record in many places. So it's kind of a, you know, a, a, a toy cost or a, a coin flip, I guess, uh, you know, how things are going, but. Um, toy cost, that sounds like something that Steve would say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in terms of uh, hunts coming up, I'm actually, I'm at Game and Fish headquarters today, picking up my over-the-counter mule deer archery tag. I'm gonna the last couple of weeks of December, do some, do some archery hunting. And, uh, Jody mentioned my successful elk hunt. I was extremely lucky in drawing a, a muzzleloader bull tag here in Arizona. So I got a, 
I got to go out and chase elk in September and, and uh, was fortunate enough to, to bag a, a pretty nice elk. So, yeah. What about you, Jackson? Steve had me uh, hired on here right in the middle of September, so I got... <laughs> so I was working. So I moved. You can blame me for the empty freezer. So. Oh, come That's on. Okay. You would have had to have your tags before then, so... <laughs> I, I did get to draw back my bow on a, on a couple elk this season, but they escaped me up there in Montana, but I as well be, be picking up my over-the-counter tags here in uh, Arizona, so I still got a chance to fill that freezer. Nice. So, Jody... Um, Jackson calls me and says, oh, I drew a bison tag, a backcountry bison tag oh, in Montana yeah. this year. And I'm like, well, how many people do you got to get it out of that country? He goes, uh, I said, you, well, <laughs> you don't got five lined up. You know, he ended up canceling that hunt because we, he had to get to Arizona to, to start work. And, you know, he, he, that, that, you know, having hunted bison you know i i know that was tough and we thank him for doing that it, i wow. gave him the time he just he decided not to pursue it on his own that phone call um, was actually trying to get steve to volunteer to help yeah <laughs> and apparently he did not Great <laughs> well i was planting shrubs in in yes. idaho and and fishing in alaska so there was really good reason for me not to help um but you know i, I think it's you know you mentioned that we still have deer seasons going on. Arizona is one of those unique States that you can buy a tag on January one and hunt next year, fall tag um, in, in basically the month of January, I believe. So there's still quite some opportunity. And I know in talking to uh, one of our favorite people, uh, Jim Heffelfinger, Jim Deer, um, you know, a lot of people do head down to Arizona to capitalize on that opportunity. And, you know, we hope you guys fill your freezer, but more importantly, get out there and, and utilize the resource you're helping conserve. And um, also, I would say, you know, mentioning Jim, hey, we need as much dirt on Jim as we can get. So you guys work there with him in the state, you know, just keep your eyes out for, for stupid stuff he does so that we can use it against nice. him in the future. So we'll do, we'll do. All right, guys, is there anything that uh, that we didn't talk about that you were excited about or have on your horizon that you are, are want to share the group? Um, Lucas, I know there was that Migration Maps book that went out. Do you have any intel on if another one's going to be coming out? Yeah, so the, the corridor mapping team is going to be um, coming out with a volume two of the migration report. And um, I'm kind of expecting that to be sometime early in the new year. Um, and associated with that, there'll be some, you know, migration maps that are, are released. And I wanted to also mention, because you mentioned the report, but there's a, there's a website that folks can check out called westernmigrations.net. And you can actually, it's an interactive viewer where folks can see where these corridors are and, and uh, in the various cool. states that are providing that info. Yeah, excellent. What about you, Jackson? You got anything else on the horizon? Anything you missed? I'm looking forward to Han Expo. Well, we'll see what that Arizona tag brings. I mean, I think that one's gone as high as 300,000 and all of the hundred percent of that goes back on the ground. goes back to so, specifically deer habitat. Yeah. yeah that's, and that's through, that's through the HPC, right? The, the habitat partnership committee. Tell us a little bit, cause you're involved in that now, right? Yeah, I am. That's a partnership between Arizona game and fish and some conservation organizations where the game and fish commission gives out, um, special tags that get auctioned off by conservation organizations such as MDF and all that money, I think is the really cool part. All the money for that tag that goes, that gets sold goes directly back into that same species habitat. 
So 100% of that mule deer money goes into mule deer habitat. And that funds a lot of my projects too. And I, I really appreciate it. I think it's a really cool project. For sure. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those ones that, you know, we have a board member down there, Jody, as you know. Um, one of the, the, the pride of ownerships that we have at MDF is the ability to raise a couple hundred thousand dollars a year by putting that tag at Expo. And I think it's Saturday night. I haven't looked this year, but it is one of the ones that everyone looks forward to because to think about a single opportunity to chase an animal in Arizona is bringing, you know, over a quarter million dollars. And then every ounce of that goes back into the ground. MDF doesn't benefit at all from that other than, you know, the fact that it happens at our event. Yep, for sure. And and I again, I, I think something we've also mentioned in previous podcasts, but it bears repeating as well, is a lot of times those tag dollars provide the matching funds for other, for larger projects and larger funding opportunities that we have. So, so using 300,000 as a, as a, um, you know, as the number, if that, I know that's not exactly what it was, but if that was what we were to get this year, that 300,000 could be leveraged in multiple projects and other granting programs to be millions of dollars um, for. And that's exactly the case for one of the projects that the Jackson's working on the West Escondida that started off as a hundred percent funded HPC funded project. And now we have significant, uh, I don't remember the last figures, but it's getting close to three quarters of a million dollars of other money that's coming in because of that. And, you know, starting it, as uh, not as a catalyst because it had something to do with the reaction. It basically was, you know, the, the kindling for that project to go from a couple hundred acres to, I think Jackson, what we're looking to do three, 4,000 acres. Absolutely. In the next year. So. Yeah, it's huge. It, it, it allows a whole bunch more cobbling together to do a lot more work in, in important areas. So pretty cool that that's going on. All right, guys, we have pretty much hit our max time here and appreciate the time that you've given us here as well. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person, Jackson, out at uh, Hunt Expo and seeing you again, Lucas. Thanks for all the work that you're doing. Until the next time, this is Jody Stemler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and thank you for talking mule deer. Thanks for talking mule deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.